This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast God knows what. Um, I'll have to get back to you on that. With me from Los Angeles is Chris Rossi, screenwriter, um, playwright, uh, director. Hi, Chris. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. And also in L.A., Guy Zimmerman um, is back. Hi, Guy. Also hey. playwright, director, teacher, author. <laughs> Hi, Guy. How's it going? Good, good. Okay. Um, uh, I, I kind of, this is part two, in a sense, um, a continuation from our last um, podcast. And I kind of want to talk about um, writing some more, but also um, directing what what we think that is and and acting and maybe some of our own experience uh, with those things uh, how you how you learned about directing because we've all directed our own work and other people's work over the years um, and uh, and then you know and everything's taking place I mean it, it, it's almost like we were just talking before I started recording um ab about the protests and the george floyd murder and the police and all of these things and somehow that factors into all of this you can't have a discussion without touching on it a little i think so anyway um let's let's talk about um directing a little bit if that's okay with you guys yeah yeah i you know i uh you know, I've been thinking about this in terms of the, you know, the very specific kind of bond between actors and playwrights. So when playwrights are directing their own work, which is in many circles kind of uh, considered to be an anathema, but in fact, it's, um, it's a very potent connection and one that I think in some ways, a lot of the sort of theater establishment exists to prevent. And it's, I would agree it's, with that. And of course, it, it, it often doesn't work at all. And so the critics are correct about it. But when it does work, it ends up producing, you know, the most transformative uh, work. So, you know, so you look at theater history and you see Shakespeare and Ibsen and right. um, these are all writer directors, you know. Well, um, I, I know that when I started, and this is really a long time ago, um, and uh, uh, I, I did a play at Padua that Jim Bauerline directed for me. And I had no idea what I was doing and I was running around watching Murray and Irene and Sam Shepard, everybody directing their own plays and trying to learn how to talk to actors. And that was, that was the, the thing that I found most difficult and, and kind of intimidating because I thought I would be exposed as, as the amateur that I was somehow um, because I didn't know the secret handshake um, that directors have with, with actors. Um, and, and I, and I kind of canvassed all, 
all those artists at Padua about, geez, you know, what do you say? How do you talk to actors? You, they all, you don't give them line readings, you know, you don't do this, you know. And it made a little bit of sense, but it was still, it was still um, opaque. I, I didn't, and, and I, when I finally directed, which was the following year, I was lucky to have people that were, that I knew that were friends because God knows what I was saying to them. You know, I, I just, the process is, is delicate. And, and um, as you say, there is this kind of special bond and, and it's incredibly intimate. That was the thing I didn't realize. Like um, it, you're, you're allowing yourself to be exposed in this kind of, extraordinary way that that doesn't happen in you know one's ordinary day-to-day -day existence and uh it's part of what's exciting about theater but it's but it's frightening yeah right you know guy to your point about the the, the sort of intimate bond between playwright and actor and John, what you're saying about directing that there's that first mo the first read through there's something very special about that where you're it's the first, and it's a great time for a director to just kind of shut up and, and see what's going on. It's the first encounter between the actor and the words. And, you know, some say it, it, it there's an argument for that it never gets better than that first read through, but there's, it's just something pure about that moment. They're not acting, hopefully not overacting. Um, I don't know. I just find that a kind of a special sacred moment, that first moment when the words that you wrote are embodied and hopefully the impulses are firing and you i, I really get a lot out of that i, I think it's yeah. I, I love what you just could how you just connected the you know the text and the body because i think that's you know that's the the real magic is of theater really is is the the sort of mind body problem aspect of it where you know it really is this you know this art form that's about the collision of bodies and language, at least as, you know, theater that includes dialogue uh, is all about, right? And, right. you know, like not all kinds of theater involve that. Obviously there's all sorts of post-dramatic theater that's really about image and, you know, rhythm or whatever. But when you have language and bodies on stage, it's there's something very mysterious that happens and it's linked to all sorts of other human experiences that have to do with the confusion of the embodied and the semiotic, you know, and all sorts of power structures that run on, um, you know, the, the phenomenon of abstraction of how we are controlled by these symbolic technologies of language and money. And then it all becomes, it all gets linked on stage to the body. And that's one of the things that's so special about it and why unmediated contact between playwrights and actors can be so potent, I think. Yeah, I, go ahead, go ahead. Why, you know, going back uh, to something you were saying, Guy, about, why is it anathema for, in certain circles, many circles in theater, for a playwright to direct their own work? Like, what's, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Why is that problematic for people? because it is such a pure connection. I have two thoughts about that. I'm sure you have many too, John. My two thoughts are one, 
that it's often a disaster to have playwrights direct their <laughs> work. Yeah. And second, and second, but second is because when it works, it results in transformational work, transformative work. And much of the cultural apparatus exists precisely to prevent transformational work from actually uh, finding its audience. And we ha you have to appreciate that, that society, you know, culture does not want to change just like everything else. And so it doesn't really want uh, new work that, that changes it. People don't want it. People want it and don't want it. Right. Well, I think, I think there's two things. Um, and this is kind of what you said in a sense, but I, but I think the, one of the reasons that that idea um, took hold that playwrights shouldn't direct their own work. There were a couple of sort of old chestnuts. Well, playwrights lack perspective on their own work. That was what I was always told. Mm -hmm. You're not objective. You don't see what the play is really about. And, and therefore you need, you know, um, somebody to come in and translate your own work for you or something. Um, and, and as you just said, I mean, it's not that there's not truth in that. I mean, sometimes you do, often you don't know what your play's about, in fact, but I've never seen that as a bad thing. Um, uh, and the second, I'll come back to that. The second reason is probably to do with, with class and a, and a kind of professionalization that took place at a certain point in Western theater. And, um, <clears throat> you know, playwrights were, were, were separate from the, the process of, of the nuts and bolts of putting the, the actual play into, into a state of performance. Um, but I don't know. I have, I've never read a history or anybody explaining that actually, interestingly. Well, the, but, go ahead. Yeah, go, no, no, please, please. No, I just think that, that I remember, I've told this story so often, but I remember directing um, Dream Coast when, when we did it at the taper, second stage. And um, uh, there was a scene... Alan Mandel played the old guy and he was ranting and somebody said something to him and we stopped rehearsal. And, and I, I said, God, I, you know, I, and Bob Egan was sort of co-directing. I said, I really hate this play. <laughs> I hate this play. <laughs> I said, this play just sucks. And I'm going to, I, can we just cancel this whole thing? <laughs> like forget about it. I said, really? Yeah. Cause I don't want to be humiliated, you know? And, and, and I, I'm, I'm appalled at what I'm seeing. It's not you, you guys' fault. It's my fault. It's, you know, and everybody calmed me down and said, find Stepling a Valium or something, you know, and let him sit down. And anyway, it was, you know, three days later, dress rehearsal, and I'm sitting in the audience watching the full tech run through. And we come to this scene, and it suddenly occurs to me that that scene was about my father that that character was my father in, in many ways, not entirely. And that I had heard him say those very things. And I thought, my God, how did I not know that? How did I actually literally not know that? You know, what, what mechanisms of, 
of blockage were involved in preventing me from Oh my God, yeah, yeah. But, but it was like a discovery and the scene was great, ended up being great, even though I had no idea what it was about because on some level, obviously, I did know what it was about. But it was really an unconscious process. Oh, it, it can be completely appalling to, to even think back years later and recognize, oh, that's what that was all about, you know, right. about a play that you did. The, um, you know, the one that I was going to say, you know, that, you know, the, the institution of or the role of the director is really an artifact of the late 19th century, really. And there's an interesting history about it. But it and, and the politics of it had to do with empowering producers, because producers, you know, play directors and playwrights off against each other. And right. You could probably throw actors, you know, important actors in the mix. But one of the practical things about the, the practical obstacles to be to directing your own work is that actors need to do it. Actors need to perform the work badly on the way to performing it well. And that can be a devastating experience to a playwright. Because right. you're, you're, if, you're, if you're writing something that's sensitive, you're, you're just as you just expressed, John, you're terrified that it's no good. And so to hear actors do it poorly because they're trying to figure out what it is and they have to come to hate it too, um, you know, that can be just a devastating experience that you can't tolerate. And so a, a lot of times with uh, playwrights who are directing their own work, the actual rehearsal process gets distorted by all of the kind of the emotional stakes of it, you know. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that it's, it's, you know, it's, it is, it is complicated to direct your own work. What, what Chris said a minute ago about that, the first read through hearing the words, when it's your own play and you sit down and you're the director and you're doing this read through that, yeah, that's a, a terrifying moment and it's a wonderful moment. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's something that, usually is full of all kinds of, you know, epiphanies, um, epiphanic moments, um, because you're hearing things you didn't know were in the play. That's what I always find. You know, I'll hear a scene and I'll go, wow, that was really good. Did I write that? Because fuck me, that's good. Um, because I, I hadn't heard it that way. But that's also what actors bring to it, right? It, right. It's this why is... This is yeah. premised on on the idea that you cast it well, because yeah. of course, if you fuck up the casting, which is one of the things one of the, uh, a playwright director's favorite things to do, it, is to fuck up the casting. You know, but if you fuck up the casting, then that first read through can be excruciating because you know it's just yeah, not the whole <laughs> the whole play can be excruciating. I, I've been pretty lucky. I do remember one, um, I, I did Dream Coast in London. There was an actress in LA um, who came out of Cinda Jackson's workshop and, and she was rich. She's a very nice lady and a pretty good actress, but she wanted to produce it in London. And so she did. And she flew us all over there. Mick Collins, me, everybody, the whole cast, we were, you know, there we were in London sharing a flat. But we had to cast a couple of parts in London. And we got down to like when rehearsal, and we still hadn't, rehearsal was gonna begin, we still hadn't cast this one part and, and time was running out. And finally, 
Um, I think the, I think it was George Gerdes. <laughs> of course it was George Gerdes. Um, said, I know a guy who's in London. He's great. He's great. Trust me. You're going to love him. I said, okay. I have no time to audition him. I, I called him. I said, can you do it, man? He said, oh, I'd be thrilled. And so he, and he was terrible, right? He was, he may have been a good actor. He was terrible in this. And I knew it the, the minute he opened his mouth, you know, the, the first adjective out of his, I, I mean, I knew I went, my God, this is going to be a catastrophe, a nightmare. Um, it's going to be torture. And it was, it was the worst, one of the worst experiences I've had in theater. Cause I, there, we simply did not communicate. There was no way that anything I said was going to, to make any difference because um, he was the wrong guy for my plays, you know? And it's why all of us use the same people repeatedly, because when you find somebody who's good, who hears your work, um, it's, you know, it's like a precious commodity. You, 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 you rely on them. You know, I mean, there are a number of people like Lee Kissman and Steve Davies and stuff that I've used, you know, a lot of times Beth Ruscio, um, because um, I, I trust them, you know, and, and I trust that they're going to show me something that I didn't hear in, in the play myself. And uh, yeah, but it can, be, it can be terrible when there's a misstep. And, and that, kind of, that kind of sank that London production. It wasn't, it wasn't horrific, but boy, it was, it was problematic. Mm. Um, but how do you compare that to directing um, stuff that's not your own? It is a whole different ball game, and uh, you know it's it's interesting watching someone like I've worked with a, a a wonderful director named Julie Crockett here, and Julie, you know, is a, a very different kind of director. She's also a writer, but she, um, you know, she, I, I'm always amazed at just the capacity to. Um, you know, of, of that kind of director to manage the whole uh, spectacle of it. And um, I think that that's a separate, it's almost a separate talent in a yeah. way. Spectacle but I don't know. Word, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, the, the sort of, and of course, you know, it's easy to kind of, un, you know, it's easy to, to critique the spectacle. And at the same time, it is its own thing. You know. Um, what about, I mean, I know Guy, you and I both worked on those weird experimental kind of adaptations of Shakespeare back um, <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And, um, that was, I remember you said to me one night, we were standing in the back and listening to parts of Macbeth and, um, with the late John Horn. John Horn. Uh, and, um, and he was wonderful as Macbeth yeah, and, um, and you said something about that. It was, there was something about being marinated in that language night after night and during the rehearsal process, you know, day after day, night after night, hearing Shakespeare, that it was so extraordinarily rich that, that it, it, it never grew, um, 
at all tedious. You know, there was, it, oh, it was like, fantastic. Yeah. and that, and that always struck me as, as, as really correct and, and insightful. And, um, and that's something different than like when I've taken on, you know, there's a festival and somebody asks you to direct somebody else's play and you say, sure, because they need a director and you do it. And maybe it's not a great play. Maybe it's okay, whatever. Um, and, and that's, that's a very different experience because you're, you're, you're working with something that you think maybe is imperfect, you know, is not a great play and you're trying to get something up that, that has value, you know, that has some of those qualities we all, want in theater and and that's really hard i think for for me there's a moment always as a director there's a moment where something emergent takes place so that it's no longer your it's no longer your vision and it's not the actor's vision it's something that is greater than than the sum of its parts which is sort of a banality but it is this moment where suddenly the, the play itself emerges and takes its space, mm-hmm. takes its place on the stage. And it's a kind of a magical thing where it's a feeling of things breaking open. And it requires, of course, the actors to be fully off book. And it requires you, it usually takes place at the stage where you're running through, you know, from beginning to end. And suddenly something emerges and everyone recognizes it. And you yeah. sit up and, and notice it and you then, and, and I mean, that can happen with all sorts of texts. It doesn't, you know, it, of course it happens most with really, really remarkable work like Shakespeare or Beckett or something. But it's, it, I've had that experience with texts where I felt like, you know, they're, we were bringing a lot, the actors were bringing a lot to the table. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, no, it does kind of, and, and, I mean, I actually have a theory that's um, esoteric, I think, in the extreme, probably. But it's another way, I think, of saying kind of what you just said. Um, Because I always feel like they're in good plays, because this is not true of every play, I don't think. But in good plays, and certainly in great plays, they're there is a point where the play is speaking, not the actors, not the direction, not anything. Absolutely, yeah. This autonomous magical thing. Absolutely. And yeah, that's, that's and it's hard to describe to people, right? Well, and that's when, that's when theater redeems itself as an art form because, you know, (laughs) it it usually has a lot to answer for. Have you, to that point, have you guys ever seen a, I've never seen a, like a high school production of a great play. Like I, in New York City a long time ago, I saw Hamlet done by this high school and the costumes weren't quite right. The actors weren't quite right, although some of them were quite plugged in. And it was, but there was the emergent quality you're talking about, Guy, and the, the play was there. The text was there and there was oh, something yeah. Yes. Yeah, I have oh, yeah. production that, that that matched what was going on in the, the the court, the kingdom at that time. It was perfect. It was a, yeah. a great example of the the play and the text sort of you know profoundly emerging and overwhelming everything. I saw a junior high school production of Shakespeare. It was one of the comedies, and I honestly don't remember which one. Um, 
and it was just as you described. It wasn't quite right, and some of the kids kind of went up and, you know, were self-conscious at times and, and all of these things. But it was wonderful. It was like the play was there. Yeah. And, yeah. In a strange way, yeah. you heard Shakespeare. And yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, a mystical experience in some sense. Um, reaching back from 400 years, there he was, you know. You know, the other thing is that's so intriguing about theater too is that, you know, and we've all had this experience, which is, I think, quite unusual, uh, where you watch the same play night after night. And it, the, the variation in, in what it is that emerges is, so, is just endlessly fascinating. And of course, sometimes it can be just absolutely transformative one night and the next night it just falls flat. And it, it has to do with that elusive chemistry between a body of you know, people in the audience and what happens on stage and that, that sort of intricate chemistry of the reception. And the, you know, uh, it's just another wrinkle in all this. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the things that's so intriguing about theater. It's interesting the role the, you mentioned the audience plays because I, you know, one one of the most hated moments in theater. I'm sure you've heard this, experienced this. You know, the play is about to start. The audience is kind of nervous. They're all in one place. They're going to see something serious, and there's this kind of faux fake nervous laughter after someone <laughs> says the first line. Yeah. And it's like it's not even funny, but there's a, <laughs> you know, like it's just all wrong. It's a way of not experiencing, and it hopefully that relaxes. But it's, and I can't imagine the actors like that, or maybe they think it's validating. But it's just a, it's a complicated, not right moment that seems to come from an audience's well, anxiety. And, and then there's some people you just you just know if they're in the audience, it's going to be a good thing because they're going to laugh in a certain way, they're going to be plugged in, and they're going to help. Every, they're going to help point everybody else to what's really going on. Absolutely. Or or you have somebody who is just completely wrong in the yep. audience. And you realize, yeah. go home, just close it down. No, there were people that I remember used to come and I go, oh God, he's in the audience tonight or she's in the audience. Um, you know, they laugh at the wrong things. They laugh compulsively, whatever it is. Um, it's really hard for actors to, to not get thrown off by that. Um, and whenever I would see those people, there were a few of them I knew, uh, I thought, oh God, it's going to be a, it's going to be a long night. Um, but you know, that just as a sidebar observation, um, about laughter, I, do, I don't, this is like a peculiarity of mine, of me and, and not to be extrapolated, um, upon, but, um, I have a problem with comedies in general. Like, I don't like comedies. It's not that I don't laugh at comedies if they're funny. Um, I'd like to think it's not because, you know, I lack a sense of humor or anything like that. But there is something in contemporary society and the way in which um, the spectacle and, and, you know, mass culture and everything has, has conditioned people um, that that makes laughter almost always teetering on the edge of hysteria for me. Um, and if you go to like, you know, a comedy club or the improv or something, which I never, I think I've done twice in my life um, because I would rather, you know, bleed through the eyes than, than go to a comedy club. But um, it, it, the laughter is, 
it's like not healthy. It's insanity. It's, it's some kind of, it comes from something distinctly qualitatively different, a different register of being than, um, than non-comedies, than dramatic plays. Um, and, and, you know, if you, like Beckett is very funny, right? You, you watch Beckett and everybody always laughs at Beckett plays because they're incredibly funny. Pinter too. Um, but that's a different kind of laughter. The laughter at comedies, and this I think was different even like 50, 60 years ago. Um, I don't think the same kind of laughter existed for the Marx Brothers, say, um, that, that, you, that you find today. And I don't have a full explanation for this, but um, it's, it's my own problem with, no, that, that with, makes sense. with comedies, yeah. The kind of sadism there in the comedy underneath everything. People are drunk. Are you secretly hoping the guy bombs? The comedian's like this sacrificial animal or something. Maybe they'll win over the crowd, but maybe they'll, you know, completely implode. And I don't know. Sometimes they're cruel to the audience, but that's that's in there somewhere. And it's not right. comfortable. Yeah, I think the, you know, I think that the, you know, the subversive humor in... Um, in Beckett and Pinter, you know, comes from sort of music hall and vaudeville, which is, you know, the, the tradition of clowning, you know, which clowns are always very subversive in a certain way. And, um, you know, I think it's very different than the sort of sitcom comedy, you know, where, you know, which is all about, uh, you know, enforcing normativity through ridicule, you know. Yeah, and and I think it's you know it's it, it it's the it's the reinforcement of of normativity that always puts me off. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to laugh at this particular well, the trope, <laughs> but but I know what it's connected to. It's connected to a whole structure of of sh you know reward and punishment that keeps things the way they are. Well, I think. You know, Chris quoted Janae last time that identification is the lowest form of appreciation, which I think is true. And I think comedy as it exists today is um, that laughter that we find sadistic or neurotic or hysterical or something um, comes out, can only, is only triggered by this bad identification, this, this, whole matrix of, of, of levels um, of, of identification. And um, it's like the anti-existential somehow. Uh, because when you're in a Beckett or a Pinter play and it's funny, that's a whole different kind. It's, you're not laughing at this, this thing that you recognize, like, oh yeah, my ex-wife did that too. <laughs> um, it it it's something else, like you know. Um, oh, you know, I went to see I went to see Diane Weist in uh, Happy Days here. I guess it was about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. I don't know if you saw that, Chris. I didn't um, know. Oh my God, you know, and it was at the taper, of course, and it was, you know, a third of the audience left at least at the intermission right but <laughs> it's just i was just grinning from ear to ear from the opening line till the end i mean it was just the most astonishing thing. i mean i was so happy to see it it was so 
uh, beautifully done, right? And, um, you know, it's just an example of that kind of humor that's just, I, I, you know, and I, I, w I found it so mysterious that how he was able to kind of do that in a way that just seems even funnier today than, uh, <laughs> you know, than it probably did when it, when, when it, when it opened, when it first opened. And I, I recently, I remember I saw a bunch of Beckett shorts at, um, at the, uh, what was it? The um, place in Westwood there. What is it? The, uh, I forget, but it was like three uh, years ago. Yeah. And um, yeah. say again, Chris, what was it? The Broad? No. Yeah, the Broad. Yeah, the Broad. And I was like, I was in this audience and I, it was quite, quite a huge audience. And I, and I thought, what are these people doing with Beckett? You know, there, it was really a kind of a, you know, a bourgeois audience, you know, West Side audience. But I thought that their connection to Beckett was actually authentic. And I was like, what is it that Beckett is answering that these people, what is it, what is it he's offering that these people desperately need? And there's something very deep in what, in the response to Beckett, I think. Yeah. Did you ever read Adorno on Beckett? Yeah. Yeah, he. I think he explains Beckett really well in a in a sense, and I always found it interesting that he loved Beckett as as much as he did, and that in turn reminds me. I was sort of surfing the internet the other day um, because I was looking for um, like PDF files of of Pinter's radio plays and one act. He only wrote a couple, um, and I I found a YouTube of of this sketch that he wrote, The Applicant, I think it's called. Oh no, it's not, it's the other one. Um, it has one of those titles like For All That or something. And it's just these two guys chatting and um, it's two minutes long. And Pinter was reading one of the parts and he was the author as well, of course. And um, he was just wonderful, you know, and hysterically funny. Uh, and having a wonderful time doing it. You know, he was amusing himself greatly with, with this. And there's something, you should try to find it because there's something um, liberating about watching that. And I, I probably couldn't explain to you why, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, no, I don't know what, what Beckett, what Beckett provides for a West Side LA audience at this point. Um, but, you know, what does theater provide for them? I mean, we're, this is back to that thing, right? That we all constantly um, discuss because um, there's a dwindling audience for, for theater as we think of it. And uh, uh, I don't know how to, how to get that audience back, honestly. Yeah. Has, uh, I oh. certainly don't either. <laughs> Distraction, I don't know. Yeah. But I think you know the the radio plays um, that we're doing with no radio, the podcast plays. Um, the the first round was very successful, and a lot of people listened, and I got a lot of nice letters and emails and um, you know texts and stuff. Um, from people uh, that that found it um, inspiring, yeah, and, and, 
and I got like 20 requests from people I hadn't talked to in years saying, could I write one, you know? Uh, and, and I thought that was really interesting that it, that it was inspirational on some level, you know, cause these were just very short little pieces. Right. But it yeah, but partly, they do what, they do what we do, you know, they do the thing that, that yeah. this kind of work does. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a, you know, and I think it's a, I think it's a variant, like I think what Beckett does, I know we're probably nearing the end of our time, but I, I think what Beckett no, no, does going, is a, it's a, it's a mod, what people, what, what needs to, to be understood about Beckett is that it's, it's neo-tragic. In other words, you know, Beckett's particular form of irony is doing, I think, what tragic drama did um, way back in terms of opening a little space from the kind of uh, crush of symbolic systems, you know, money and, and language that otherwise are kind of over-determining our experience. And that the, the kind of irony in Beckett's work explodes some of, is like a little explosion within that armor that opens up a little space where we can breathe. Yeah. And we, you know, as a species, we're just getting strangled by our own, you know, this ratcheting symbolic network that just has a mind of its own, has its own dyna dynamism, and is just ratcheting down on us constantly um, through dynamics that we don't understand and can't really track. Uh, and, you know, we need relief from it. And, you know, that's, that's sort of what I think the relevance is of that kind of work. Yeah. Um, I remember Edward Said gave an interview on the BBC um, not too long before he died. He was very sick. And at the end of it, whoever the Ponce was that was interviewing him said, well, what is, the, what is your final thought, your final overriding thought about contemporary society? And he said, the unreality of it. And that has always struck and stuck with me. And, and I think, you know, however many years on from that, the world has only gotten more unreal. I mean, the amount of propaganda just since Trump took office, for example, um, from COVID to, to, you know, the protests, the way mainstream media covers it, the way, you know, billionaires buy visibility in, in media. Oh, yeah. you oh know, it's amazing. It's shocking. Absolutely yeah, shocking. It's, it's, yeah, it is. And it's, and, but it's unreal. I mean, well, and just, just watch, watch five minutes of Fox and Friends. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, this is, this is the vision of a couple of billionaires and they're force feeding it to, you know, the rest of, of some huge proportion of American of America, and it's just a it's it's like Rupert Murdoch's pathetic fantasy, you know, and it's a it's a kind of a uh, you know a parasite of the brain, you know, it's a it's a it's a parasitic vision of normativity, and it I mean what's astonishing is the kind of traction it has, dragging everybody into a completely unreal place, right. yeah, you know, yeah, of self satisfied falseness, false consciousness. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. And that's, yeah. go ahead. You know, just, this is, this is why Beckett's so important or the radio. Yes. yes. Because they yeah. cut through that bullshit 
and focus an audience on perhaps what is real or what is important and highlights the falsity of all that. And, you know, just taking it back to writing, you know, how do we, that's the, you know, how, how do we write from that place Beckett does? How do we keep our focus away from the easy joke or whatever, or the nonsense and, and create that kind of work? Um, that goes back to our very first podcast or maybe the first question, you know, creating work from that place and, and why it's so important. Right. Right. Yeah. That open well, place of not, of not knowing. It really is a place of not knowing of direct contact with experience without any buffer of, you know, like a map of any kind, a conceptual map, you know. I, I remember um, years ago, um, I had a, I had gone to a reading of Blythe's and uh, afterwards he was talking to some people and I introduced myself because I knew Terry Ork who was close with Bly at one point and we were talking and somehow got on the topic of the Vietnam protest readings that he did with Galway Cannell, Allen Ginsberg, Robert Lowell, all these poets, W.S. Merwin and um, and he said this interesting thing that I think is more relevant today in a sense, or that it's, it's re, sort of recreating this same dynamic um, that existed during the Vietnam era, Vietnam War. Um, and he said, things are surfacing in people that they can't control. Yeah. Um, people confess things to you and they're not even, and then they catch themselves and say, what am I doing? Why am I telling you that? You know, um, and it's because it was triggering these deep, you know, unrecognized corners of guilt and shame and, and everything in people and, and, and touching on something they knew but denied, right? I mean, I think people know that it's the spectacle out there. Even the most indoctrinated somewhere in there, but it's the only thing that gives me hope, is that, that, that um, and why I think art is important, is that somewhere in the most indoctrinated, there is a recognition that, you know, everybody in corporate, America, everybody in mainstream media, everybody that is bought and paid for by these digital gajillionaires are lying. Mm. You know, that none of what the, 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 they're operating in bad faith and they're lying and that there is a class struggle and there is, you know, all of this propaganda being disseminated and but there, but there's a, there's a very powerful force of denial. And I think that's kind of what art does. I mean, back to what Chris said about Beck, I think art triggers things that um, touch on when, in, if it's a period of social trauma, right? And great art always comes out of social trauma somehow, um, or usually. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it triggers something that that makes, that breaks down those walls of defense and denial, even if just for a moment, right? Um, and I think, I think that's why the, these forces of propaganda and stuff, I mean, this is what you said, Guy, are working so hard to keep art 
out of keep it invisible uh, for, out of the public oh, for eye. sure oh mm. for sure i mean it's you know we and uh, to some extent we all model that we say no to change usually when it comes even when it's really what we need you know right um, and so it keeps knocking it comes back and knocks a little harder and i think that's you know that's what we're seeing today with these protests this is like you know this is the the result of 50 years of dog whistle racism yeah and and all of the class dynamics that it's kind of accelerated and accented and energized you know it's really you know th that dog whistle racism is how you know the the this huge transfer of wealth from the middle class to the upper class was accomplished it's astonishing right yeah, absolutely. absolutely astonishing no you know the, the power of it that it would be so effective is absolutely astonishing well you know i had a conversation with somebody on social media and boy we should have a conversation on one of these podcasts just i am increasingly convinced absolutely of the um the evilness of social media yeah social media is a problem yeah. that it's really that it's really a destructive force um, anyway, um, and they were talking about the pulling down the statue of the slave trader William Colston, right? And in Great Britain. And somebody said, yeah, well, but, you know, um, it's a part of history and you're, you're destroying history. And I said, no, the, the, the slave auction block in South Carolina that a lot of people wanted removed, maybe it was, I don't know. Um, I said, no, that's erasing history in the name of sort of, you know, um, um, sensitive feelings or something. I mean, that happened. Those slave auctions happened and you need a reminder of it. That's history. A statue of a slave trader that was meant to honor him and, and um, praise who he was is a form of rewriting history mm. because that's not the real history, right? He wasn't a good guy. He was a terrible human being. And of course, you know, then you get, well, should Teddy Roosevelt statues be torn down? Sure. Should, you know, yeah. on and I on mean, and on. You know, I, I, well, go ahead, John. Let me let you No, know. no, that's all. That's all. Go ahead. Well, I, it's, it's so astonishing because, it, you know, I was at, the, at this museum in, in Philadelphia about, I think, last summer. Maybe it was last summer. And, uh, you know, looking at these colonial portraits, portraits of great men and wigs. And then you'd read the caption and they were fucking slave traders. And you're yeah. like, oh my yeah. fucking God. You know, yeah. I mean, look, think about what these men did. Yeah. You know, uh, it's absolutely, absolutely horrific. And of course, now what we're all kind of being invited to do is like experience this as if you were a black American. Like, what do you think if you see this? <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's breathtaking. I mean, because that's another, that's another branch of the, of what's going on, of this social trauma we're witnessing, I guess. And that is white panic, right? Yeah. Um, where the day or two days after George Floyd is murdered, all this stuff comes on social media about, well, he was a really bad guy. He was a porno <laughs> actor. <laughs> And I think, well, of course he should have fucking died then. You know, I wish I'd known that earlier. Um, and and you think, what are you? What are you so un? You know, self-aware that that you can't hear at all what 
what you're well, saying. You know, it would be dangerous for three white guys to start talking about, you know, black American pathology, you know, the pathology <laughs> of anti-black racism in the U.S. But it is really intriguing, you know, how how deep seated that is, like how important it is to a huge portion of of the U.S. of white the white population in the U.S. that they can that they can demonize black Americans. It is really important to their sense of self. The person who really gets at this, I think, is James Baldwin, especially in that story. Oh, boy, you know, yeah. The man, you know, he really gets into why, you know, what is the role? What is the, the weird libidinal sex, you know, quasi-sexual role? Like, and you can just see it. Now you see it. You see these men uh, standing on the side of the street who are Trump supporters imitating kneeling on a black man's neck. Yeah, as protesters pass and you're like wow man this is so intense and weird and strange and well dark. look at i mean look at hollywood you know um there's a harriet tubman film coming out and they've invented a fictional white character who is her friend mm. i mean you know the mind just reels you know um, Isn't there a John Brown movie with Ethan Hawke or something? Yeah, like Ethan Hawke is in this, and I saw a still from it. It was so appalling, <laughs> so appalling. Um, you know, Lex and I wanted to write a John Brown script to get to Mel Gibson. <laughs> I really think Mel Gibson is the perfect actor to play John Brown. That's how perverse I've become um, in my later years here. Um, but no, I you know. It's, it's back to, Chris and I were talking a little bit about all of this before we started recording, just that three of those four cops are guys that worked at McDonald's, you know, and, and Home Depot, and they stocked shelves at grocery stores, and, you know, and then they joined the police. Um, and uh, that, that boy, you know, um, that's like class traitors, they should be on the side of the people they're in fact abusing and occupying. Um, but uh, there's so much in that, and but the, the part that is relevant to kind of this this podcast is that, um, you know, you're a, you're flipping burgers at McDonald's one day, and that's a position of humiliation, right? right. And the next day you're given a gun and a badge. Never mind, it's one of the most corrupt, racist police departments in America, Minneapolis you see yourself as Hollywood represents you in about 3 million different cop shows um, as heroic and, yeah. you know, thin blue line that keeps people safe and, you know, from the lawless mm -hmm. underclass and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so of course that reinforces. Yeah, you're you're suddenly part of a heroic narrative. It's the same, it's the same phenomenon that, uh, you know, gripped people. You see these, you know, these people who, you know, in, in the South, these sort of poor white crackers who don't amount to anything, and suddenly they're given a white robe and they put it on and they're part of a heroic struggle. How can they resist? You know, their life suddenly has, a, you know, this meaning, this, this transcendent meaning. Boy, we I was yeah. astounded how little, the actual training period is so short. What is it, like a couple months or three months or not something? Not even that. It's not even that. Yeah. 
and you and you then you come out with you know qualified immunity and you can you know do whatever you want more or less with impunity it's of course you're not going to flip burgers of course you're going to you know yeah and you know it's yeah no i mean you know it's it's um I mean, there's a whole there's a whole discussion the evolution of of policing, you know, which in the U.S. started as slave patrols, but they were hired by plantation owners to protect property, and all of that stuff has never left, you know. And that that the racism of the plantation era of the slave era has, you know, has never left um, the American character. That's for sure. And it's, it's, and George Jackson wrote about that, you know, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's so deep in, in American society. These are the, right. I mean, the, you know, it, it, you know, slavery and, and the genocide against indigenous peoples yeah. are the two great karmic debts. And, you know, the, the bill is coming due for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, all the more reason for, you know, uh, aesthetic resistance, I say. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's, you guys are busy. I'm going to let you go. Um, but this was cool. And thank you very much for doing it. Um, and uh, anytime, you know, let's do more because I think Absolutely. it's, I think it's useful to talk about, in a way, I, you know, we talk about writing and we talked about directing a bit, but it would be good to even more probably discuss nuts and bolts. I want to get into rehearsal one time. The the nature of, because Guy Zimmerman, you had a really good paper I read, academic paper um, that somehow popped up in my inbox um, about the offstage and stuff, which we've talked about for so many years now. Yeah, we should talk um, about that, John. You know, that but that was a, it was a terrific was paper. Insider. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, God. it was a really terrific paper. And um, is that the one at the Louisiana? Is that or is it the Pinter one? The hetero. Oh yeah, heterotopia. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and but you talked a little bit just in passing about repetition, right? Right. right. And this is something I think is not understood i've written about it a little bit but i think it's a profoundly important part of theater that makes it different from film you know mm -hmm. and that is in that rehearsal process those endless days and nights of you know getting off book learning lines actors learning lines repetition changing a tiny little thing repeating it repeating it repeating it um that 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 you know, repetition in a psychoanalytic sense is, you know, a recreating trauma again and, and, and trying to fix it. And um, it's, it's, it's not an accident, it's not a historical accident that this art form is so entwined with an almost compulsive repetitive practice. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very much yeah. built into it. It's right? completely built into it. And yeah. it's a recognition of how form perpetuates itself, you know. And, and so a, if you're going to. There's a direct it, connection with the body, right? I mean, you're absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Goes in the body, which yeah. is this, you know, arguably the seed of trauma. So it's all, you know, comes full circle. And oh. absolutely. 
Yep. We'll have to do another one of these. Yeah, well, I guess we have to. I guess we have to. <laughs> Guys, thank you very much. Um, you, this will be up soon. And Jack Lippman, we should thank again for handling so much of this stuff. And people listening, um, the second round of the uh, quarantine one acts, and we'll probably have to call them the, you know, slightly post-quarantine, but still mask-wearing era one acts. Um, God, we could do a whole thing on masks. My God. <laughs> yeah. um, the phenomenology of wearing masks. Uh, anyway, uh, the round two will be up soon and uh, featuring the work of Guy, Chris, and myself. And um, so stay tuned for that. Thank you. And um, that's it for today. All right. Take it easy, you guys. Thanks, Thank guys. You. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye.